Hello, and welcome to Popular Podagogy. I am your host, Nathan Cheney. This podcast is brought to you by Queen's University Faculty of Education. We're joined here today by Allison Cummings. Allison, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, So we're going to jump right into it here. Rumor has it that you speak five languages, and (laughs) one of them is ancient Greek. So are you able to give us a little bit of a sample today? Oh, did someone say I speak five languages? Who said that? I think your LinkedIn page Oh, my said LinkedIn that. page is, says that. Yeah, so it was you that Here's said that you speak thing. five languages. <laughs> I know five languages. Oh, it's, it's the key when to the words. When you study dead languages, you don't necessarily speak those languages. Uh-huh. Some people do. There is a movement for uh, Latinists that they are very big into um, the pronunciation, and you'll have like little fights between classicists and medievalists and that sort of thing. Ancient Greek, I don't know that many people actually speak that, and it's very, very different from cla- or from modern Greek. Well, that's very really interesting. Language. Yeah. So how how did you get into learning all of these different languages? Did you just up and decide one day I'm going to go and learn a bunch of languages and? That was that, or how did you come about to... See, that's where it shows Nathan stopped on my LinkedIn profile. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I started university, and one of my first-year classes was first-year Latin that happened every day, five days a week, and the class was at 8.30 every morning. And oddly enough, that was the only class I enjoyed in my first year of university. Really? So I, and I was very, very good at it. And my prof said, ooh, you should take Latin, Mrs. Cummings. Well, I mean, it's so useful in everyday life. He didn't life. say that because I wasn't Mrs. Cummings at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you should. And you know what? I took Latin only because my mother had taken Latin. She went to a convent school and she had studied Latin and loved Latin. So that was the only reason I just added it to my transcript in my first year, and so he said I should take Greek, so my second year I started ancient Greek, and before I knew it, I was a uh, Latin and Greek major. And that helps, you You did classics as well, right? So that probably helped with that. Well, my major was Latin and Greek, and so then I did a little bit of history. I did horribly in ancient history. I did a bit of archaeology, but I only did that so I could travel in the summers and go on <laughs> digs to Italy and Greece. And, um, Which there are worse reasons. There are, <laughs> there are a lot of worse reasons to take courses. Um, and, yeah, so most of the, I did a lot of um, Greek and Roman literature courses in the languages and, uh, and an English minor, just because I knew I'd have to get a job. <laughs> All right. So this is an education podcast, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're in a little bit of a different educational setting um, than probably most of the people that are listening to this podcast. So um, for the people out there that don't know, you're the training coordinator for Queen's HR. I got that title officially right. I am, yes. uh, So how did you get into this type of position, and uh, what are some of the things that you do in this this role, in this capacity? I I came to HR just about maybe a year and a half ago from the International Centre here at Queen's, and so kind of consider myself more an interculturalist from that experience and an educator really that's where my education um education started and i uh found my way to hr because i had been doing a lot of training and um they were looking for a training coordinator and i was looking for a bit of a change at that point 
um, so my experience in human resources has allowed me to um, really expand my repertoire, as a, especially as a facilitator. So in-person um, workshops on a lot of different topics that I had no idea I would ever be training people on. And so Things like time management. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying, Nathan? Um, <laughs> for those of you that are wondering, Allison showed up right on time for this podcast. Right on she time. Was, she was right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Queen's is obviously a big organization. Mm-hmm. So why is it important for big organizations to have this type of training and learning and, and opportunities available to their their staff? To their staff, yeah. That's um that's a great question. Um staff I think always need training for a number of reasons, uh to stay engaged in a job. I think um professional development is really important. I um I think a lot of staff, and at especially at a big university like Queen's and a big um, organization, there are opportunities to advance. And if you're not keeping up with your skills and constantly looking for something new to challenge you as far as your your professional skills, you're going to get a little bit stale. And I think also the workplace is constantly changing. I think um, the intercultural training that I do especially is really, really pertinent to every staff member because we are constantly becoming a more diverse workplace. And, you know, the principal has a huge um, emphasis in his strategic plan on internationalization. We have the comprehensive international plan, and that emphasizes diversity and bringing more international students, um, bringing more international faculty and that sort of thing, um, increasing our partnerships. And all of that requires intercultural skills. And that, happily, is my specialty area. So there are all sorts of opportunities that I'm finding, especially now being out of the international center that was solely focused on student service, now looking to staff and faculty and some of the uh, people who are here on campus more permanently, that's um, really where investment in those skills can, I think, be of great benefit. So... Your background, like you said, is in intercultural mm. communication, intercultural mm. studies. So how did you get into that field? Because it wouldn't be something that you likely, especially with your Latin and ancient Greek majors, how did you transfer yeah. that into that? <laughs> yeah, sadly, the uh, Latin and Greek didn't. I knew they wouldn't get me a job. The English didn't either. You know, really, I think it was just my charming personality that got me the job at Starbucks, <laughs> <laughs> which with all the other good uh, humanities graduates, um we moved here in 2000, um, and I took a year off. I'd been working for a while, and um, then the International Center happened to uh, advertise a job that was a half-time job, and I thought, that might be a nice in at Queen's. And um, I got that job in – it focused on risk management and international student housing, which happily was sort of the two sides of international education in a very basic sense. And – because I was the only one on the team that was working half-time, we, a couple of years after that, maybe one year after that and then two years after that, we um, started the program. But we got a uh, some funding to try um, developing a training program for people, staff members who work in international education. And because I had half a day free, I got a contract to do that job and develop that training program, so the International Educators Training Program. Right came from that, and then I was in full-time and 
um, within a few years, I was coordinating that program full time and and then became from that training coordinator um, in the International Center. Um, and when they made that full time, then I had to think about the whole campus and not just international educators across the country who needed professional development. So it just sort of started to roll into this role of more interculturalist. And I think that that's maybe because in my training role, I wasn't working on the international student side specifically or the study abroad side specifically. Um, so the intercultural started to come out in me, and I had some opportunities to do some training as an administrator of things like the intercultural development inventory and brought that tool to campus. And then, yeah, it. Um, 16 years later, <laughs> here I am. You just sort of fell into it. it wasn't, I fell into it. It wasn't an intentional no, uh, means no, no. of it. You just no. found the job and then fell into it that way. And and. Have you found it to be rewarding to to have the, that kind of background and to be doing that type of training in intercultural study? Or? I yeah, it's um. I'll tell you a story about um, my graduate degree from when I was graduating with Latin and Greek because I knew there weren't jobs in that. I went on and did a master's or started a master's, I should say, and went to the University of Victoria where I met my husband. He moved to Ottawa to do his PhD, and I followed him there and kind of played around with finishing my master's for a few years and then decided that wasn't happening, so deregistered. And it wasn't until I had been doing for maybe about three or four years intercultural stuff um, here at Queen's that I kind of started thinking, you know, it would be really interesting to think about the intercultural competence of the ancient Greeks. And I had been working with um, uh, ancient Greek drama, Euripides, in particular, thought, I wonder if we could tell anything about um, Euripides' intercultural competence through his characters in his dramas and use the intercultural development inventory theory. And it was the first time I'd ever been excited about doing my master's. <laughs> and <laughs> so in 2013, I finished my master's in just under 25 years, and I'm quite proud of that. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank yes, you very much. Hey, that's not everyone finishes no, their master's. Not everyone funny. does that. It's fun to tell international students that when they're working in the office and they're getting all stressed out about you know, getting their program finished. I said, hey, 25 years, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that would make them laugh, at least. <laughs> um, so your background in intercultural mm. uh, awareness um, it's a really big topic right now uh, in workplaces and in classrooms, and particularly with cultural sensitivity. Mm. Um, so how does that change the landscape of your field, and how have you kind of adapted uh, your intercultural practices to help others um, become more competent? Hmm. I guess through training opportunities, I've been able to at least get my perspective and the way I think about culture out and I feel like I have a way that helps people understand that culture is a little bit more prevalent all around us all the time um, really intercultural is just about understanding difference and relating to difference and I think a lot of people especially when I was in the international center and I, Perhaps this is why it was more satisfying for me to come out of there and go into HR. People always thought, oh, culture, international, um, it's all based on, you know, one's nationality or ethnicity or that sort of thing. And really, and I had been sort of 
training in this way for a long time. It's not. It's about any difference. We all have a number of cultural identities that we carry around with us. And so understanding difference, we really just have to look for difference because it's around us all the time. And if you think of culture as a set of values and beliefs and behaviors, if you think of your cultural identities, that can apply to your gender, it can apply to your age, it can apply to, you know, a sports team that you, you know, play on. They have a distinct, you know, set of behaviors, set of values. And if you think about it, you probably behave a little bit differently with, you know, your sports team members than you do, say, with your grandmother or with your kids or, you know, so that all of those differences, gender with, um, with age, with sports, with sexuality, with and indeed with ethnicity and, and nationality and that, it's all about a set of behaviors and values and understanding your your actions and the way you exist in the world in relation to those things. And I think when people start to realize that and understand how important their own culture and all those various cultural identities that makes up their unique culture, how important they are. It's not just about kind of recognizing, oh, the international students, they're the only ones with culture. Right. We used to have, I, when I was training students, and Canadian students would say, you know, we'd have a mixed group doing intercultural training, and they'd say, yeah, but we don't have culture. And you'd see all the international students just go, look, with, you know, big eyes, and, <laughs> and think, oh, really? <laughs> you know, because you really, sometimes if you haven't been out of it and been exposed Maple to... Maple syrup and lumberjacks, what are they talking about? That's all it is, about? Tim Hortons coffee, yeah. Yeah, hockey, yeah. That's it, <laughs> that's the Canadian culture. And it's funny, and maybe I'm really astutely... Um, uh, aware of that, I think I meant acutely aware um, of that because I don't like Tim Hortons coffee. I don't watch hockey. And so when you hear those things, you kind of feel like, oh, that's not my culture. And that makes you feel like, oh, what is my culture? And what are my cultural identities? What are my values compared to, you know, okay. And that's the thing is if you don't know your own culture, First, you're never going to be successful interacting genuinely and effectively with others. You, you need to get that clear. You need to get yourself clear first. And how would you uh, suggest to people that they could identify their own culture? Because it sounds a lot easier than it prob- probably, you know or what? a lot more difficult than it probably is. I don't know. I think it's, if you just want to start and be reflective, if you want to look around yourself and think, you know, I, I sometimes, I walk my dog. Every morning and, you know, on a dog walk even, I will kind of be aware of things that are happening. And if you're, it's early in the morning. I remember once this, um, we would always come across this woman, this same woman, and I'd see her about a block away and she would go out onto the street and walk around us. She never looked at me. She never made eye contact or anything and then I would kind of watch her as she passed and she'd go back onto the sidewalk and I always thought well that's just odd why wouldn't she just walk by me on the street and it then I got thinking about she was apparently of Asian um, descent and I, I, then someone once mentioned to me how dogs are have a very different place in Asian cultures <laughs> and it's everything went bing you know of course she didn't actually like dogs. It wasn't me. It wasn't as, you know, and that space made her feel much more comfortable right. passing us than having to. And, you know, the thing is, my dog, if she passed right beside him, he would, you know, probably like nuzzled her hand or something. And that would, you know, be very uncomfortable. And 
that's fine. But it's that kind of self-awareness of things going on around you and why are they going on around? Okay, and so she, okay, and then you start thinking my values. Okay, my values. I'm a dog owner. My dog, actually, I don't have kids. My dog's a big part of my life. That then, you know, gets me thinking about myself and my values. And that's what you really need to do is just watch your interactions, be aware of your interactions, and start kind of reflecting on them. What do they say about you? And I guess, yeah, your behaviors are the easiest thing to then, I think, indicate what your beliefs are that relate to those behaviors right. and what the values are that actually relate to those beliefs. That, you know. So it's, it's self-reflection. That's how to, I think, get in tune with all the different cultural identities that you carry. So aside from self-reflection, um, this is a podcast for teachers. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So what tips or advice would you offer to teachers who are better are trying to better accommodate different cultural uh, communication styles within their lessons in classrooms? Hmm. I would say that being curious, being respectfully curious with your students and asking questions. Ask questions. Try and understand where they're coming from and, and try and be sort of in tune with when people are challenged or when they're having difficulty, when they when they feel uncomfortable. And then try and probe into that. Maybe it's because of a difference in a way of learning or um, even a classroom situation. Um, at the International Center, when we used to deal with uh, international, when I was working more with international students, uh, I got to thinking more about things like power. And there's certain dimensions of culture that are really, they're recognizable patterns. And interculturalists have studied them and found all sorts of evidence for um, certain ways in, especially um, in national cultures. And you'd hear there'd be students, international students, who had a lot of trouble with group work. They, you know, they just were really uncomfortable. There were all sorts of things going on, and I always used to think, why wouldn't the professor notice these things? Notice, for one, that all of the domestic students were getting their groups together with just domestic students. They didn't want the international students. They, for some reason, thought that that's going to slow them down, it's going to make things difficult, it's going to, you know, bring their mark down. They, for one, weren't recognizing how that diversity does actually bring value to a group. Right. Um, but the other thing with Asian students, they have a very high um, what's called power distance. So they have great respect for the professor. They don't necessarily feel the value of learning from their peers. So group discussions in class, they would find really, really tiresome and really like almost like a waste of time. They didn't understand that there's stuff to learn from the people around them, but they also had come to learn from that guy at the front or that woman at the front. Um, That, you know, that that's where that that respect that they had for the professor was above all. And at university, that's who you learned from. So that makes it difficult then. And I think um, if instructors and teachers are aware of those things, they can then maybe try and, even if it's um, explaining the value of, you know, group discussions in class at the start, if it's maybe, if, if they don't want to make up the groups, right. maybe um, right off the start, say, there's some marks that are given for the diversity of your group. 
and you have to identify what that diversity is. It doesn't have to be, you know, from diff- all from different countries, but maybe you can identify the diver- diversity of your group and what value that's bringing to the project. Um, things like that. I think just being really aware of what's going on and how people are having, how people and students are interacting and, and how they're existing in the classroom and their comfort levels. Because I think you can sense people's discomfort pretty easily. Right. And then be curious about why would that be? You know, and I think that probably comes from talking. I do feel like we have to communicate more and we have to be respectful, but we, we're not going to learn if someone doesn't tell us. Right. You know? And choosing when to, to have that communication yeah, is very yeah, important yeah, as well. Yeah. As you don't want to have, especially with particular students, you have to know the students and understand the students. And yeah. um, it might not be that they want to address that at that time, and you might yeah. have to come back to it and, and understand That's it that right, way yeah. as well. Or in a group. You know, you don't want to other right. people and make them feel all uncomfortable. But I think showing some curiosity and respectfully, and like you say, in the right time and the right place. Right. And yeah. just like any other time, if you're a teacher and you're making a, a group um, you want to be aware of what students are going to work together and how they're yeah, going to work yeah, together. And, yeah. and that all comes back to what you were talking about earlier, where everyone has their own culture and everyone yeah, has their own identity. Right, yeah. And even if it's not necessarily blatant, where it's uh, ethnicity or gender or whatever it may be, it might be that personality-wise you have mm-hmm. to identify how they're going to yeah. interact with each yeah. other. Yeah. And that kind of ties back to intercultural yeah. communication as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we're going to transition a little bit here. Uh, so you wrote and taught a course for the Professional Studies Unit at Queens. Now this this program is uh, kind of the uh, evolution of the IATP program that you yes. were talking about yes, earlier. So it now is, it's yeah. called the Certificate for International Education Professionals. Um, so how did you adjust in preparing a course for distance education, and how does that compare to training and teaching in person? <laughs> It's quite different. Um, I did that, I have to say, with the help of my um, curriculum development person at the Faculty of Education. I can't say enough good about the the team there and how they helped with um, just adjusting. I I have, like I think, um, a real curiosity curiosity about people and how they learn and how to help people learn something. So I love always, like I never, when I do a workshop, I'm always changing things. I'm always changing activities to keep it fresh and to sort of apply stuff I've learned from previous experiences. But um, yeah, Karina at the Faculty of Education is how I managed to do it. What's <laughs> your shout out, Karina? <laughs> yeah, there we go. I, um, I, had, I had a great um, set of material because, like you said, the old um, IETP had three level one face-to-face courses, and essentially what I did was combine those three in the IETP course that, or the certificate course that I've de- um, developed for the faculty. And so there was a great like foundation of, of information, but then taking it and thinking, okay, how do we combine it? First of all, and make it. Um, relevant, like all the material, because they were from separate courses, it was actually the intercultural one that helped me tie everything together is because we look at study abroad and we look at international student um, services, but we do it from an intercultural perspective. And I think that helped to make it more coherent than it might have otherwise been. Did you have any challenges with teaching an online course in comparison to a face-to-face course? 
it has it there have been challenges i think a lot of it um is though from teaching a course a long-term course i'm really used to doing workshops and in three hours you know you start and you finish and that's good but when you've got like eight weeks and you're going through things and you're marking things and there's all sorts of um sort of processes in line i'm, I'm obviously having to get to know the learning um, management system and how that works and that's fine that it's I, I think it's working itself out I'll have my grades in on time just want them to know that my grades will be in on time <laughs> but um it was just yesterday it was a funny thing because I was reading through um, someone um, had posted something and I had um, remarked on it and then a few other people had come into the conversation and there happened to be two Nicoles in the class and wouldn't you know it one of the the first person's post was Nicole and then their last initial is M and W too so my mind is immediately thinks of those as the opposite and so kind of connect them together too and it's like um, anyways Nicole M had talked about something and then I had answered and she had answered and asked about something and then Nicole W got in on it and then asked about something and I answered Nicole W but it was actually Nicole M who had and it was like this thing, and I kind of said to them, you know what? Having two people with the same name in an online course, it's like twins. <laughs> it's like having twins in your course that you're, I, I kind of felt like they were messing with me. And uh, there are certain things like that that, you know, there's so much in communication. Teaching is a lot about communication, right? right? And there's so much of communication that isn't about the words. Whereas online, it somehow does become so much about the words and right. and the names of people and things like that. But it's a it's a different way of teaching. But it it can be really fun because I think the other thing is is it's not as immediate, so you get more reflection, even in your answer. Like if I were doing, say, one of those topics live, we could probably do it in an hour, but. I can spend an hour thinking about one person's answer and, right. and responding to it. So it is way more reflective, which is something that I love. And I really always, as you know, I've just even today gone on about self-reflection. I think all of like learning is so much about reflection. So it almost is a more effective way of learning in some ways. Okay. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more Alison Cummings after the break. Are you an occasional teacher looking to improve your job prospects? Are you an experienced teacher trying to reach the next pay scale? Are you interested in improving your overall teaching practice? Queen's Continuing Teacher Education has you covered. With easy-to-access online courses, you can log on to your course from anywhere you have access to the Internet. Courses offered by CTE range from special education to technological education to safe and accepting schools. Queen's CTE courses work with your schedule, have supportive, expert instructors that want to help you succeed. Registration is fast and easy with no commitment to pay until the Friday before the course starts. What are you waiting for? Visit coursesforteachers.ca for more information or to sign up today. That's coursesforteachers.ca. And we're back with Allison Cummings on Popular Podagogy. Um, so, Allison, uh, as you know, we have a section on the show uh, that is called Classroom Confession, and this is an opportunity uh, for teachers to come on and talk about 
um, whether or not they have had something funny happen to them or one of their students on uh, in their classroom. Um, we obviously leave out any identifiers or anything like that because we don't except want we don't want the us. students writing it. Yeah, except for us, we're okay to embarrass ourselves. Um, but when I presented this to you, you actually had an interesting idea and in that you wanted to do an intercultural confession in which yes. you had a few stories where there were a few, a few intercultural faux pas. So I'm going to let you take it away and kind of discuss those. Right, and this nicely circles back, Nathan, to my language. The first language, how many languages oh, do you speak? I can't wait. <laughs> um, yes. You'll have noticed one of those was Italian. And I I don't remember that it said speak because I'm not sure I would have put all those on because I did study French, German, and Italian. As soon as I knew that I was going to go to grad school in classics, I made sure that I had taken some of those courses so I could at least read the stuff. And with a background in Latin, that sort of opens you up to a lot of the Romance languages and makes the reading of them especially easier. But um, I don't know that I would have said I spoke Italian. This was in my first summer in Italy as a student going on an archaeological dig. Um, and we were in this little town. Um, it was close to Rome. I think it was a little bit south of Rome. And in the first few weeks, it was just, you know, it was my first time away on a big trip, um, kind of free. <laughs> um, in Italy, of all places, we lived in an apartment that was on a beach. We walked down the beach to go to the dig, and we watched, walked back up Sounds the beach. Sounds like a real rough gig. It was a really rough time, and it was just so fascinating to me. Um, anyways, we... And we were in this little town. We were this group of Canadian students, and most of us were female. And so we were a little bit of a presence in that um, town. And there would be quite often just sort of groups of Italian males, kind of of a certain age, just hanging around, you know, happening to fall upon us and things. So we got to interact a fair bit with Italian males. And I was just so astonished for the first week or so how many of them, their name was Louis. And it was like, wow, is that just like this area or something? Is that? Well, of course, those of you who know, Louis is he in Italian. <laughs> and so <laughs> they call each other Louis when they say he a lot. And I, I felt like such an idiot when I finally realized that because I had been calling this guy Louis all night. <laughs> and he looked at me a little bit funny every once in a while, but it didn't seem to matter. It was that, you know, we don't speak the same language, but we mean the same thing sort of situation. So right. that was a little bit of a, yeah, well, a linguistic intercultural confession. The fact that he was still speaking to you oh, after you, you know called what? him yeah, for the matter. entire night, It though, just didn't matter. That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one. Um, oh, you want more? <laughs> Do you have another one? Yeah, have, we can go for another I have, one. I have another, yeah. I remember once... Um, I'm not a big drinker, and I don't know if you've traveled abroad, and that's something that sometimes maybe alcohol gets a little bit crazy, but um, we, this was the second or third year, I think it was the third year, and we were had been invited to the mayor's house, I think, of this little town that we were digging in. We I was part of the, um, the sort of, I was a, a leader, like a dig leader um, that year, and so we got special treatment. We got to go to the mayor's house for dinner and had pizza right out of the backyard pizza oven and things like that it was it was now as an thinking about things intercultural so much more I kind of think oh my goodness what a lot of wasted years but 
um, I remember after dinner this night, and there's the Canadians and maybe and some family members and stuff. There's probably a dozen people around the table. And uh, they get out this bottle of something and little glasses. And sort of my only kind of experience that I could connect to it was at home when, you know, you'd get the liqueur out after dinner and you'd have your glass of liqueur. And so the head of the family kind of passes it to me first. I think I must have been sitting beside him and my glass is there. And so I pour my liqueur glass of this, whatever it was, and, like, all of these Italian men at the table were kind of like, whoa, kind of, and, arrows, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what, what, what did I do? <laughs> I haven't drunk it yet. Am I still okay? But then when they poured, they poured maybe, like, about a centimeter into their glass, and I had poured a full glass of this, and it was sort of like, okay, so do you drink it? What do you do? Is this going to actually kill me? Um, how drunk am I going to be? If I do drink this amount of it, it was just one of those really, it was one of those awkward kind of moments where you feel so naive and so, oh, unworldly. And did and you drink it or did you I put drank it back? It. Oh, wow. I drank it. And you're still here. So and I, I lived to, you lived to, to talk about it. And you remembered it, which is the yeah, more important right. thing. That's yeah. right. So it wasn't, it wasn't so horrible, but I did kind of feel like these, this family must have thought I was just a complete lush or something, you know, and it's like, no, I'm not. I'm really quite a nice girl. Anyway, and that was an embarrassing. And just speaking now that we're on the topic, but speaking of your exchanges, did you find that they were valuable for you? Um, did you, did you really kind of appreciate those experiences? Would you recommend that people do those exchanges mm. if they're mm. in university now? If they are now, absolutely. I think we have come such a long way in just preparing students and recognizing the value of that experience in a way that, <laughs> like this was um, 1988. This was 30 years ago. Right. Wow. That was my first. And um, there was no pre-departure. We, I think we met with the um, the, the archaeologist um, faculty members once and it was, but it wasn't like we talk about pre-departure. And it certainly, we didn't ever talk about what this was going to be as an intercultural experience or as an experience for us to grow um, in our sort of perception of the world and and our interactions and our experiences. So I, I regret that, but it was the time. It was, you right. know, I don't think there was anything that I did differently than a lot of other people, but... um now absolutely i do think i think there's there's something to be said but on that same vein i would say you can do that you can have that same experience if you go across town and volunteer in a you know a soup kitchen right you know and probably even there that's that old the thing i was talking about about difference being all around us and we can have those experiences it doesn't have to we don't have to cross a border but you know that is that's certainly um, one way to have the experience, for sure. Um, so before we go, I'm just going to uh, ask you if you have anything that you want to uh, plug. Uh, maybe oh. maybe that fine LinkedIn page of yours. Or... <laughs> That's full of all sorts of interesting information. Yeah. I'll have to go have a look at it. I'm going to tell people to know I myself. speak seven languages on my LinkedIn page. I think that's what I'm just two up Allison there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, does Pig Latin My, count? <laughs> pig Latin is fun. I have a, a, a sister-in-law that I used to write in Pig Latin to all the time, um, before I knew the real thing. Um, 
My LinkedIn, here's a little tip for you. If you ever want to get a lot of people to look at your profile, change something like, say you're doing some little thing, add it to your profile, and all of a sudden, everyone's looking at your profile. Oh, my goodness. And it happened to be that I put this course that I was doing for you, I put on course writer and instructor as something that, because I am, I'm doing it, it's, yeah. it's legitimate. And I got all of these, oh, my goodness, congratulations on the new job. Oh, wow, how fabulous. Oh, when did you start doing that? It's, sort of, and it's like, wow. I had more people get in touch with me over that little change on my profile. And it was great. And my views went up, I think, about 700% that week. And this is actually the last week that we're going to be able to get Allison on because she's going to become so famous <laughs> after she changes another little thing on her LinkedIn profile next yeah, week. Where when I finish that we just, gig. We just won't be able to, to have her anymore. Um, Allison, Sad, thanks, isn't it? <laughs> thanks for coming on today. This was fun. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for the opportunity. If you liked what you heard, uh, make sure that you subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Uh, you can also find us on the CFRC website and the Faculty of Education website. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information, or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.